Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Welcome to today's episode of Software Tech Talks. We're going to be talking today about project management and how to get it right and what can go wrong. I'm joined by Tom Ward, the Software General Manager for Manchester, and Andy Smart, Software Sales and Marketing Director. Could I ask you both to introduce yourselves, like maybe with a fun fact about you? Okay, I'm Tom. The fun fact about me is that I've spent eight or nine years working in tech, but I I really hate computers. I mean, I I love software and and things that run on computers, and I like talking to people about tech, but computers themselves, I think, are a nightmare. Fantastic. I think that's a great fun fact. Thanks. Hi, I'm Andy, and I hate baked beans, which always surprises people because most people like baked beans, and I grew up in the 1970s, so that basically discounted most food groups that were available (laughs) at the time. No dinner parties for you then in the 1970s. So we are going to be talking today about project management, in particular the fact that research shows that 68% of IT projects fail. So we want to get to the bottom of why this is and what we can do about it. Some of the reasons that people cite are lack of adoption, as well as lack of communication, lack of a shared vision and undefined goals. So on the podcast today, we're going to be discussing the key factors for project success, what to do when it goes wrong, and some top tips to help you to succeed when embarking on a career in IT project management. Just for a bit of context, in 2018, Software ran about 40 software projects for clients including the BBC, David Lloyd's Clubs, government departments and organisations in sectors including media, financial services and telecoms. We delivered these multi-million pound projects using software development methodologies including Agile, DevOps, Consulting and Machine Learning and AI. Project teams vary in size from one person teams to 20 individuals and we are very proud of our client retention rate of 80 to 90%. So we're doing something right. We'll have a chat about that later. So first up, what are the most important factors to consider when you're launching a digital project? Yeah, I think um, certainly having a shared vision is a really important thing. I mean, one of the cool things about working at Software is we help clients achieve lots of innovative things. So it's not just the client coming to us saying build an app or something. It's really getting under the skin of what is the business gain or what is the opportunity that we're trying to help them reach. And I think certainly putting yourself in the position of the client and trying to achieve that, we really need to get sort of under the skin of the of the problem and get, get that shared vision. Yeah, I think I'd add to that that the nature of our work is, is quite intangible. And I think that means, well, you mentioned a lot of reasons, right? And and adoption is an interesting one, but I think it's a specific example of the wider problem that is your client and your supplier can't have the same information. You you mean that by default at the start of a project, you don't have the same information? That's that's true, yes. But even as a as a project progresses, you can have different information throughout the project and different comprehensions of that information. If your client and supplier could understand this exactly the same things and have exactly the same data to look at well one they wouldn't need that relationship and two every single project would be a success and I think it's dealing with the fact that you cannot have exactly the same data and the same comprehension that is the core of the project management and adoption is, an, is a specific example of that where people with the right experience understand how to work with users and, and get something adopted. So I think what you're saying is adoption is more of a symptom than a cause 
adoption is a symptom of a failure in communication between all the different parties involved in the project. I think that's a great way of putting it. I think that's absolutely right. And what can what can you do about it? So what can you do about it at software like on behalf of the client or to set the project up for success? Or what can if you're in a software department or you're responsible for running a tech project, what are the things you can do before you launch? Sure. So I think Andy's mentioned this a little bit. So as a client, it's very tempting to just, I guess, to hand off technical tasks to a technical team. And as you mentioned with, with transparency, if you can share the, the vision and the goals that go with that, then you're giving your technical team as much room with their technical understanding to interpret that and, and get the best out of it. So I think the kind of companies that are willing to be more transparent about what's motiv- motivating them for those decisions are going to get the best out of their technical teams. As a supplier, I think it's just a sort of similar thing in reverse, so getting into the shoes of your suppliers, understanding how they, they see things. Yeah, and I think one, one of the things we do a lot with our clients is to start the project knowing that there is flexibility baked in. So should the client need to change their mind along the way or want to influence more how things are going our door is open, we are transparent, we allow for that type of flexibility. And providing we are quite clear about the well-understood parts that we can kind of take away, but we're also quite clear on which are the less understood parts, which are the bits where we potentially need to identify risk or mitigate risk, then having those transparent conversations right from the start and throughout is really, really important. So, I mean, transparency sounds very good, but how much transparency are we talking about? Are we talking about like total open kimono, you know, everyone can share everything, including commercial data or including if there is an issue and things are going wrong, do you actually, is that the right time to say, well, actually, hold on, look, here's, here's all these things that haven't gone well, or, or do you have more of a responsibility to kind of show strong leadership and say, no, no, everything's fine? I guess when we're talking about transparency, we don't mean dropping the standard of communications as well. I think if I had to say what's number one most important, it would be communications. So of a few of the things that you mentioned there, I think the tool that you have as a manager is to fit your information into stories or or build a narrative to it. So by that, I mean early on in a project, you need to be setting expectations for, you know, if this happens, if X happens, I expect to see Y. If Y happens, I expect to see Z. And then as that project progresses and you start to see these events, keep relating them back to your narrative, make your reports relate to that narrative and so on. So you've kind of got an overarching idea and this feeds a little bit into shared vision, right? That you've got this vision of what you're heading towards and then everything relates to that when you're communicating. Well, that leads us quite nicely, actually, onto what happens when things go wrong. So, I mean, maybe even what are the most common things that go wrong? Could you maybe give me an example, like talking about things that can go wrong with projects? Can you maybe give me an example and talk about what you can do to avoid it? Sure. So I've got one of my favorite projects. There's an example where um, we were both delivering new features. So it was greenfield work. But at the same time, we were trying to improve stability of a legacy system. And they just got to this breaking point where through the fixes, you have your odd problem. And what we had was a period of time where there was a few outages in a legacy system. And what I'd actually done before this is we've been raising concerns throughout the project because we were focusing on new feature work. We were worried about the stress that we were gradually putting on this legacy system because of increased load. So the increased load was actually good news. It was because 
we were driving more traffic through the system. It was becoming more popular. So the current system was kind of suffering already to the exactly. extent where they were out. Like the system would just go down and it would be unusable. However, what you were doing was building on even more features that was going to drive more traffic. I can see why that might result in a challenge. <laughs> yeah. And so we had this complicated message where, you know, the good news was, yes, look, we've made this site so popular. You're getting all this demand. But our concerns about the legacy system failing to handle that demand have been realised. So what you're saying is that although you done, you and your team had done a great job putting in these new features and they, they were shiny, they met the client specifications, but no one could use them because the underlying system couldn't support it. If the system can't cope with the load, it doesn't matter how good your new features are, they're not going to be usable. The way that I found was best to respond to this was to fall back onto the process and the relationship and the narrative that we'd already built up. So we had an outage. It got enough senior attention that a lot of people started to get grilled. There was a lot of pressure to basically put everything down, disrupt everything. And actually, this this outage was part of a series of fixes that were ultimately going to make this legacy system support the load. So the message to the client and the actual... I mean, this basically turned into a, quite a big success because, yes, there was, I guess, a bit of noise that was, that was upsetting, but it, it ended with the attention that we've been pushing for for a while. It sort of highlighted that you can't always ignore these technical concerns. So it was a mixed story, but ultimately successful. But the main job for me throughout this was to not let anyone push us out of the processes that we know that worked. So we built this really good system of delivering quickly and regularly, and it was working. And it was only through delivering quickly and regularly that, yes, we were, we were straining other systems, but let us keep delivering quickly and regularly and we will fix that. And, and that's what we did. Yeah. OK, move fast and break things. But then you can move fast and fix them again afterwards. Exactly. Don't move fast, break things, notice it's broken and then decide to have a conversation about it slowly. <laughs> I think this is quite a good example of communication as well, because what you're talking about there is almost like surfacing the underlying issues that are already there and people are trying to ignore and pretend aren't there. And then using that information to make the system more robust and more durable for the long term overall. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good example of that. I mean, what I would say, this was in a a fortunate position where I'd been on the account for a while and we had a really strong relationship to fall back on. I'd been concerned for a while, so this it really did feed into an existing narrative. But I say even if you don't have that and it's a new, a new project and something goes wrong, that transparency is the main thing. So set aside your concerns, set aside your commercial concerns, fix the problem and then have that conversation later and, and learn from it later. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Yeah, from my side, the, the sort of feedback we get from our clients is that they... They really appreciate the early warning signals before a small problem come, turns into a big problem. The fact that we're able to try and flag that up, be brave enough to have that conversation quickly and come up with a preemptive or a, a fast action planning solution. That's great for clients. They really want to see that response. Something that I think is really interesting that you were just talking about is capitalizing on relationships. So having to build strong relationships when things are going well so that you can call on them when things are not going so well. So are there steps that you actively take to build relationships? Yeah, there is. I mean, especially when you're working with a client for the first time because you don't have that, you know, that longevity. You don't know everybody 
and you don't have that trust from delivering over a long time. So it's really important that you start building those relationships very early by talking to the right people, buddying up with opposite numbers, say there's a, a technical person on their side, buddy up with a technical person on our side, and start to build those relationships from a standing start. It's a good investment. But then, obviously, that will flourish as you work together, deliver stuff together. And then going back to that th- point we made before about the shared purpose, shared goals, shared pats on the backs when things go well, that helps to, to build that relationship up so that should something, a challenge come up down the line, you're all in a good trusting place to be able to work through that together. Yeah, I was quite fortunate in one of my early project management roles where I was with a client who was who spoke quite freely about their mind. So let's say that that was transparency. It worked out beautifully because after enough, you know, me saying something and them saying, why are you saying that? I think something totally different. It just got to a point where I had this model of them sitting on my shoulder um, and every action I took, every report I sent, I just would sort of ask this person first and see if, if they had a hilarious reaction. So, yeah, this feeds right back into what we said at the start about getting into your client's shoes. Don't ask them something where you know the answer answer that for yourself present that to them and and work out what the next one is and so on and also just asking people as much as but and I suppose on both sides if you're worried about something saying it not sitting on it and hoping it will get better or worrying about offending people really it's best just to say it and then you'll get the actual reaction yeah I think that's quite that's an interesting but slightly nuanced point there's a balance between um presenting the facts of life as they are and always being negative so this is why, you know, when, when we talked about what happens when things go wrong, if you've got that relationship built up, you can fall back on it and start to be a bit harsh with the facts of life. Early on, it has to be a balancing act. There has to be a lot of trust. Cool. So something that is a very extremely popular maxim of business is that the customer is always right. So is that true in software development? It's just absolutely impossible that that could be true. I can't think of any, (laughs) no matter how hard I try to contrive a scenario, I just can't believe it. As I sort of said at the start, you just have such different pools of information. So a customer has a much better view of political situations, strategic situations, budget situations. And as a supplier, you, you have all this noise about the legacy systems and, and greenfield systems and what's, what technical stresses they are, and you have to manage both of them. So yeah, I'd say but it's impossible that any one party in this relationship can make all the decisions. I'm sure there's the odd thing where a customer's definitely right in isolation and same where a supplier would definitely be right. But it's surely good business practice if the client comes to you and says, we want this, and as a supplier you say yes, right? That's what the client's looking for. That is what the client's looking for. There was a time when a client came to me asking for a very specific report that would have been incredibly expensive to generate. And I, I guess an earlier version of me could have said, that's very expensive to generate. I'm not making that report for you. And then, I, and then if they said no, I'd say, no, no, you're, you're being illogical. It's expensive. You don't want it. And that's a complete waste of time. What actually happened was I said, sure, that's interesting. Can you tell me about why you're asking for this report. Did someone ask you for this report? Oh, yes. Their manager asked for this report. Okay. Did you get a feeling for how your manager was feeling? Were they annoyed about something? Are they concerned about something? Oh, they've just got... Not, they're not getting much visibility from something that's happening. And I said, okay. Okay, I can make you, you know, a very a beautiful report with lots of data, but it's easy, cheap data for me to access, and I think it's more meaningful data. So I think it's more useful to you, and I think it's cheaper to generate, and I think it solves your problem. 
do you want me to do that for you? And they said yes. And then I went away and came back. And then I asked, I followed up with them, you know, what did your manager think of that? Oh, they loved it. And this is what I mean when I talk about narratives. I said, I'll solve this problem for you. I think it's going to impress your manager. Then I follow up, did it impress your manager? Yes, great. Is there anything else that you, you can ask your manager about? Because I can make some changes to the report quite cheaply and so on. And you just build this up over time. And that person trusts me, but they didn't have this great expense. So you, the project goes well and so on. Yeah, that's great. So you're not so much not saying yes as finding a way to change the question to a question that it makes sense for, on both sides for the answer to be yes to. Yeah. Yeah, and really, I don't think it's from a, from a sort of a customer service point of view. Also, it's not... It shouldn't be thought of as a yes or no situation or right or wrong situation. There's a dialogue. I think that's really important. We had a client recently who brought into the, the project that there had to be a change of priorities. That was coming from the business. Now, they told us what they felt were the priorities for the project. And we could have, the least controversial approach was to say, yes, customer, let's do it that way. But what we did instead, we took that away came back with a trade-off of okay we could do it in this order we feel that there is a trade-off this would harm the project in another important way that you perhaps maybe not have thought about here's a trade-off now do you want to make a value-based decision rather than a the business has asked for this therefore Mr Supplier can you sort this out you must say yes so it's more of a dialogue and I think taking away that tension the adversarial supplier server to person who's paying or body that's paying I think are more you know, mutually trusting partnership is the way that, that we want to go. And then you're getting access to these different perspectives of both sides. Whereas if you have one side, which is obviously usually the customer side, who's calling the shots and what they say goes, and the other side just says yes, no matter what, then you're losing the information that could have been fed into that decision-making process to make better decisions. Just finally, what advice would you give to someone starting a career in project management? Where do you start? If you have no skills in project management, you've never done it, what are the, what are the things you need to learn? So one of the things I can say from knowing our clients really well is that they're all very different. One size doesn't fit all. So we have some very knowledgeable technical clients that love detail. We have some business stakeholders who want the big picture and they don't want the detail they've got the you know short of time and are quite direct the advice I always give clients who are, always give project managers who are getting to know clients for the first time is they are all different there isn't a one-size-fits-all so the first skill that you must develop very quickly is listening and try to understand what it what's the best way to give the client what it is that they need from a sort of a reporting basis and comms basis yeah, I think that's a great question. And I've mentored a few project managers over time. So it's been fun seeing different ways that people fall into different pitfalls. Totally agree with Andy. Like the first, the question I typically ask anyone I'm mentoring is, what would the client think with this particular action that you want to take or this particular report you want to send? And they should really be able to make a good stab at that question. And then they should start answering the next question and, and so on. Right, because what's the point of writing a report if you've got no idea what the person you're sending it to needs from a report? Exactly. Yeah. You almost want to be able to say, yeah, rather than saying, do you want A or B, you say, 
I think that you want A because of these reasons. Is that correct? And then they go, yes, of course. <laughs> and then they, they, they trust you more and you've wasted less of their time and, and so on. That's my external facing advice or my number one external facing advice. My internal advice is that you really have to be on the same team as your team. If anything, in fact, I say you're pretty much a servant to the team. It's been interesting when you move into management how much trust people who are technically junior to you give you but really you don't tell them to do anything it just never happens it's all about showing that you are honestly as possible trying to solve their problems and, and help them move up their careers too. Uh, that brings me on to quite an interesting question you kind of talked there about technical ability to manage a team and be a project manager managing a team of technical people do you need to be the most senior technical person is it a case that you need to be able to do the job as well or better than them? I'm going to answer a slightly different question. So I think it is fantastic if you can describe technical problems to non-technical people. So if you happen to be the most technical person on the team and you happen to have the communication skills to go with it, then great. But it's not just about the tech. That's a great point. I mean, that's something that our clients demand. They need to understand the implications of the decisions we're asking them to make, but they don't necessarily need to know the technical detail. That sometimes it's natural for us being the most technical party in the relationship to want to give them all of that technical information, but that can just make the decision-making harder. I've often felt that my job is pretty much acting as a translator, and it's fascinating, I love it. But. Because I think that's right, because not everyone has the same level. It's back to perspectives again. Not everyone has the same level of knowledge, and yet you still need to be able to communicate and make decisions together. Um, a broader piece of advice I'd give to any manager is to is to basically step back and, and work at a level up. So I don't want to sound threatening, Andy, but when, when I would be a program manager to Andy as account manager, I'd try to have the account management goals in my head. Let's assume that I'm a success as a program manager what's the success from the account manager's point of view going to be? Is it about being a level up or is it just about kind of having everyone's goals in your mind? I guess it's that at a minimum to succeed, it's, you know, you're, you're hitting your budget and you're hitting your deadlines and, and everyone's happy. But it's what if in addition to that, you've broadened the number of departments you're talking to at the supplier or if you're hitting objectives that your client didn't even know they had. So, mm. um, yeah, for me in the past, it's been stability and performance objectives so you know they've asked me to deliver a series of projects over a few years and at the start I'd say let's assume that I'm going to succeed at that right I also want their system to look completely different at the end of those two years I want it to be handling you know three times as much load but with a fraction of the response times so how am I going to fit that into my two-year plan and no one's asking me to do that because of course I'm not because it's not my job really but the reason that that job was ultimately successful was because I tried to do those extra things fantastic well thank you so much Tom and Andy thank you if you'd like to listen to more software tech talks please do look us up on iTunes or on SoundCloud this is the last episode of this series of software tech talks and we'll be back later in the year <laughs>